Hi, and welcome to Fast Talk Fem with Dee Dee Barry and Julie Young. In this episode, we'll discuss altitude training. And our guest is Dr. Trent Stellingworth. Trent serves as a research and development advisor at the Canadian Sport Institute. In this role, he directs several different research projects across different sport performance discipline areas. He also provides physiology expertise to Canada's national athletics, rowing, triathlon, and mountain bike teams. His primary sport and research focuses are in the field of physiology and nutrition interactions, as well as environmental altitude and heat expertise. Trent has co-authored a research paper, Nutrition and Altitude, Strategies to Enhance Adaptation, Improve Performance, and Maintain Health, a narrative review, which is linked in our show notes. Our discussion with Trent focuses on how to optimize altitude training for improved performance. Welcome to Fast Talk Fem. If you're an endurance athlete, the status of your GI system stretches further than just your overall health. It directly impacts athletic performance. Tune in to Fast Talk Fem's episode 123 to listen as Dr. Alan Lim sheds light on groundbreaking GI information that every coach and athlete can benefit from to leverage and optimize their nutrition plan. Check it out at FastTalkLabs.com. Hey, Trent. Thanks for joining us again on Fast Talk Fem. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. Trent was one of our first guests on episode 111 when we discussed how to avoid overtraining. Trent, what have you been up to since we last chatted with you? Oh, boy. Uh, Life goes fast with two young boys and working at the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific and coaching a little bit more. My wife and I have an elite women's running group that we coach and then various research and development programs. We just finished up a pan-Canadian relative energy deficiency in sport research project that featured 250 Canadian Olympian and Paralympians being tested. So working on writing up that and to publish that research. And then I heard there's a big event in Paris next summer. So yeah, never a dull moment over here. No. Yeah, so we chatted in our last episode with you. You're in such a unique position being in research and then also having the opportunity to apply that into practice. Yeah, it sometimes feels like two jobs and it certainly uh, is a lot coming at you, but I do feel very privileged to have that research component to what I do. And there's many times I can pause and say, hey, like there's a research question right there in my coaching or physiology practice. So It is neat that way to be able to uh, pursue those questions. Yep. And then also figure out if it works in research, does it actually work in practice? Both directions. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Well, I've personally been really looking forward to this conversation today. I think more and more we hear about the professional or the elite athletes incorporating altitude training camps into their yearly training. And I'm excited to hear more precisely why of altitude training and then understand the intricacies of the altitude camp, exactly what that looks like. So to start things off, Trent, I think just to give us some context and some kind of big picture understanding, can you tell us at altitude, like why is altitude training advantageous to performance from a physiologic and metabolic perspective? Yeah, you bet. And even before I get to that, maybe we'll just level set at what we mean by altitude. Like how high is that? And what does that mean for the athlete perspective? And so the altitude ranges, actually uh, the ideal altitude for athletes is around 2000 meters or 7,000 feet, give or take about a thousand feet of altitude. And that is just moderate altitude. Obviously you have high altitude and extreme altitudes and mountaineering altitudes. And I just wanted to highlight that the vast majority of our altitude research is done at 
4,300 meters, which happens to be the uh, U.S. Army um, facility up at Pikes Peak. And so when you read hundreds of papers, you'll see, oh, at 4,300 meters. And that is almost irrelevant to what we're talking about today, which is, you know, 2,000 meters of altitude or approximately 7,000 feet. And when we look closely at the amount of evidence and research at moderate altitudes or the altitudes that most athletes use, there's actually not that much information and not that many well-done studies. And a lot of the studies actually used uh, artificial altitude, which we'll get to. I just wanted to level set that, that this is the altitude band that we're kind of talking about. And when you go around the world and whether it's, you know, Flagstaff, Arizona, or it's Albuquerque, or it's St. Moritz, or it's Faux-Rameau, or Boulder, they're all sitting in that little band of altitude that I've just mentioned, that kind of 2,000 meters seven, 8,000 foot ideal space where there's enough altitude to provide a stimulus for hypoxia, but it's not so high that it completely pretty much debilitates the person from doing high quality training. So there's a sweet spot there. So coming back to your question about, you know, why altitude is advantageous to performance from a physiology and metabolic perspective, I could probably answer that with three main points. And one really is the hematological or blood changes that occur at altitude. So when you're at altitude, there's less pressure, partial pressure of oxygen at altitude, which results in less oxygen in the blood. If you use an SpO2 meter, uh, many watches have it now, or you know your doctor's office where you do an oxygen saturation on your finger, it'll be much lower at altitude, especially when exercising well under 90% or even under 80% when exercising hard which stimulates the body and the EPO gene and the HIF1-alpha gene to make new red blood cells through the natural release of EPO. And those increases in red blood cells or hemoglobin take two to three weeks. And that is the primary, probably physiological response or the classic altitude training response that most athletes are after. They're trying to get that increase in hemoglobin and red blood cells. And it is the easiest thing for us to measure as scientists because we just need blood draws. We don't need muscle biopsies. We don't need specialist tests. And so most of the altitude research out there is about characterizing those changes in the blood, those hemoglobin changes. And those take, you know, three, four weeks to probably get a four to five percent increase in hemoglobin. You know, there's a bit of a rule that every hundred hours at altitude, you can expect a one percent increase in hemoglobin, give or take. The second, though, is non-hematological or non-blood responses, and this comes from a very small handful of studies and taking muscle biopsies and looking at the responses that occur in the muscle with hypoxia or altitude. And I had mentioned this before, there is this gene called HIF1-alpha, hypoxic-inducing factor, HIF, and it is a gene that is probably at the crossroads of metabolism in terms of cancer, in terms of oxygen sensor in the muscle. And in the blood, the person that found that actually has won the Nobel Prize. It is a very important gene. But if we look at what that gene signals, it signals things like capillarization in the muscle, making new mitochondria in the muscle, and all these other muscle adaptations that are really quite valuable from an endurance perspective. But again, there's probably only three or four papers that have taken muscle biopsies with altitude training that have looked at that response. And so it occurs, but it's a bit of a black box. And it's something that a lot of coaches don't think, I think enough about in terms of what adaptations are happening in the muscle as well. And then finally, a long answer, the third bit of other potential mechanisms of why an athlete goes to altitude, I'm just going to put these in the other bucket and there's a bunch of them. So things like 
gross efficiency and running economy have been shown to improve at altitude or swimming economy, both muscle and blood buffering. So the ability to handle lactate or acidosis seems to be improved at altitude. And in the blood, it might be improved in as little as seven to 10 days at altitude. Again, not well characterized. There's changes in breathing economy and breathing regulation. I don't think we can dismiss the training camp belief effect. You're going somewhere exotic and spending a lot of money to go train. That belief effect is really important. And the fact that most altitude training locations, they're beautiful spots. Like They are really great places to train emotionally and spiritually. And then finally, psychologically, I think there's different benefits because things do feel harder. Your perception of paces and discomfort kind of gets re-regulated so that when you come back down to sea level, your perception of the discomfort of endurance sport is different. So there's a lot there because it is a really big topic. I think a lot of people just jump on, oh, it's EPO driving red blood cells. And that is one thing, but I've just listed about eight or nine other things that also concurrently occur with altitude and hypoxia. When was that gene discovered? Oh boy, F1 alpha gene. I bet you it's like 20 or 30 years ago. There's some really neat data too showing it seems to have a memory. So if you go to multiple altitude camps or multiple hypoxic exposures, you will adapt more quickly. But it has been involved in things like inflammation and cancer. And it is one of the master regulators of human metabolism in terms of just how many associations it has with, I think it stimulates about 60 other genes. Like I said before, things like capillarization or mitochondria and some of these other elements. That's interesting. I think, I don't know what Didi thinks, but like when we were doing training camps, I always really kind of appreciated just the simplicity of all you were doing. You know, everything else moved to the periphery. You weren't home having to do other things and you could just like eat, train, sleep, repeat. And so that's really nice. That training camp effect is important. And a lot of the research is confounded in altitude training because they'll take a group of people and bring them up to altitude for the training camp. But the control group is usually people just left at home. They should have the budget, which is really easy to say and hard to do, to take those people somewhere exotic at sea level and isolate them and have just what you said, eat, sleep, train, repeat, because then maybe the effect sizes would be a little more normalized. That would be an interesting study. So yeah, let's now like talk in detail about a training camp and what a good training camp looks like. So I have a few questions for you. How long would the optimal training camp be? I'd love to understand what the training actually looks like during that training camp, timing before a key competition, and how often during a season would athletes do these altitude camps? That's a big question and almost could be a podcast on its own because it's similar to how are all the different ways you would train an endurance athlete? And so we could talk hours on that. And I think there's probably four main types of altitude camps. What I would say is a kind of aerobic season boost in fitness camp where you go up for three or four weeks and maybe it's in the fall and you're just looking to put in you know, big work. It's not necessarily aligned to a competition. So that's one type of training camp. You know, the goals of that training camp are just really putting in a huge block of, of aerobic type work. The intensities are a little bit lower, but the volumes that you hit are going to be as high as sea level. So that's one type of camp. I think there's a camp that's done right prepping for key competition right prior to sea level. So that might be a spring camp leading into some early summer races. That type of camp might be there to boost sea level performance. 
The other one is a camp right before competitions, but the competition's at altitude. So that's a little bit different again. And then the last type of camp I'll highlight is a kind of reboost or reacclimation camp in the middle of a competition season. So a lot of athletes might do camps two or three times throughout the year, do the classic three or four weeks, maybe in the fall, a classic three or four weeks in the spring, and then one or two top-up camps where they just go up for 10 to 14 days and maybe in July or August in certain spots mid-season to, again, reacclimate and get some of those adaptations. So each of those four camps I've just mentioned all have slightly different goals and slightly different approaches. Yeah, unless we had hours to talk and dig into each and every one of them. And to be honest, a lot of it is just my experience because there's not a lot of data and science on this. It would be challenging, but I'll highlight, I think, some really key commonalities that I've seen that make a successful camp across all four of those camps. And then we'll dig a little bit into some generalities I've seen around training too that I think can point people in the right direction. So number one is, especially if you're new or newer to altitude training, probably, you know, four to six weeks before going to the camp, it's really important that at sea level, you get really good baseline data on an internal and external load metric and some kind of fatigue tracking. So an internal load metric is heart rate, rating to perceived exertion, lactate sampling. An external load metric is running speed, swimming speed, power on your bike. So you're calibrating those a little bit at sea level. What are your norms for your different training zones? And then a bit of a fatigue and recovery questionnaire that you can use. And it's really good to get that well sorted at sea level so that when you go to altitude, you have something easy to compare to in terms of just tracking your altitude training. Number two, about four to six weeks before altitude, I would take the time to get some blood work done, especially again, if you're new to altitude. And so that blood work really includes your CBC complete blood count and hopefully an entire spectrum of the iron studies, and especially ferritin, to make sure we understand and know where your iron sits. If you're deficient or have a ferritin under 35, you probably want to start to supplement already with an iron supplement prior to altitude. If you're between 35 and 100, you can probably wait until you get to altitude. And I can send you guys this to put with your show notes. We recently, well, in 2019, wrote a uh, altitude nutrition paper where we've highlighted all the blood work to do and the associated recommendations for iron supplementation at altitude. And I think we'll dig on that a little bit more in this podcast. Three, when you get to altitude, you implement an increased level of monitoring. And so that can include some elements of hydration, perhaps body composition or body weight. You don't want that it may be in some instances not to go down. You got to make sure you fuel properly. As I mentioned before, a fatigue and recovery tracking tool and potentially morning heart rate as well, just upon arrival. And then finally, getting you know into the nuts and bolts of training is adapting the training a little bit upon arrival to altitude, especially that first week, probably in the first three or four days, it is good to back off the training a little bit, probably a 25 to 40% reduction in total training of volume and intensity, just let your body adapt initially over the first three or four days to altitude. There is an initial adaptation period of hyperventilation and poor sleep and increased dehydration that will settle, you know, halfway through that first week. You're going to want intensities probably lower in terms of the anaerobic stimulus. You can do shorter stuff on lots of rest. So a lactic work, that's fine, but pull back a little bit on your anaerobic work for sure in that first week. And then use your sea level, especially internal load metrics to help guide what athletes do for intensity up at altitude. 
So for example, if you're zone one training, whether it's running or cycling, you know, your heart rate's 140 at sea level, well then aim for 140 at altitude. Yes, your wattages and speeds are going to be five to 10% lower. That's okay. The internal load is the same, especially in that first week. So let an internal load metric guide the intensity a little bit more early on in the altitude camp, and you're much less likely to overdo it and get into trouble with an illness or sickness or maladaptation. By the time you get to week two and three, training volumes can certainly be back up to normal and high compared to sea level. You can start to do more anaerobic work for sure, but the types of intervals you do are probably two or three minutes or less. And you probably need to increase the rest intervals by 50%, maybe sometimes even double to 100%. It really depends on what you're doing for high quality work. And by weeks three and four, you can train pretty similarly to sea level, other than it's important to recognize that most hard intervals from about three minutes duration to 10 minutes duration, you may never fully get the wattages or speeds that you had at sea level at altitude. They're just too intense and too hard. Your longer work wattages and speeds, one, two, two hour type efforts and three, four hour aerobic rides or runs for sure. After three weeks, four weeks, you can probably have pretty close to similar speeds and wattages at sea level. But the high-end VO2 max anaerobic work will always be a little bit compromised and challenged just because the intensity is so high, the oxygen delivery is already limiting at sea level. Now you add altitude to it. And so at that time of the year, if it's a spring camp where that type of work is really important, where you choose your altitude camp becomes more important because then having an opportunity to go lower to do those types of training sessions, race wattages and velocities becomes a lot more important. So a place like uh, Flagstaff, where you can go down into Sedona or down into Phoenix, a place like St. Moritz, where you can go down into Chiavenna, Italy, almost to sea level. Places like Boulder, that's almost impossible. It's harder to drop down to be able to do that kind of work. That was a lot of words. It was a big question. So I'll, I'll pause there. What about using supplemental oxygen? Yeah. So actually, a couple of projects in my PhD looked at hyperoxia, so supplemental oxygen, and the effects on metabolism and performance there. We have done that with some of our athletes over the years, and it is certainly a modality that can be used. So for the listener, what that basically is, is you spend a bunch of money in a lab situation, should be a controlled lab situation where they buy 100% oxygen canisters. We usually bleed in 21% oxygen ambient air because the hyperoxic data, if you're at about 50 or 60% of inspired oxygen, your body will behave the same as 100. And those cylinders are really expensive. So when you bleed in the uh, 21% air, they last a little longer. And you can then circumvent some of the hypoxic effects on those really high intensity intervals by having supplemental oxygen. We've done that at sea level at certain times because it almost takes the limitation off your central capacity completely away because oxygen is almost no longer limiting. And so it then puts the limitation of performance almost directly on your peripheral system or musculature. And so I've seen situations where you can do on 60% oxygen, five or six times three minute reps at a wattage or speed that is your three minute PB, but you do it five times in a row. It is a massive neuromuscular training stimulus. It is really easy to overcook people with it. You need to think very carefully about how much you do, how often you do it, and be very careful with your recovery. I I would extend recovery by 
up to four days after a session like that. I can remember in 1995, I used supplemental oxygen to prepare for the World Cycling Championships in Dewey Tama, Colombia at 2,500 meters. And in the lead up, I was training with the US national team in Winter Park, Colorado. We slept at about 2,800 meters and we did most of our high intensity efforts with supplemental oxygen on indoor trainers. I believe all of our endurance rods though were on the road without supplemental oxygen, but unfortunately I overcooked it for worlds. I was okay at Worlds, but not as good as I'd been all season. Yeah. So, but yeah, so could you speak a little bit to in what situations you feel like it would be ideal to do that? It takes, first of all, a significant amount of financial infrastructure to implement that. So it's probably more about national sport organizations and pro teams having a physiologist to help implement that. So that's first and foremost. Secondly, situations that we've seen are advantageous are one, exactly what you've just talked about is native sea level folks who have to then compete at altitude where the holding camp might be at altitude and in events where maybe it's velodrome based event or high intensity event. And the only way that you can deliver that high intensity neuromuscular effort is that right there. But it's lab based, you know, there is some situations I've seen where in speed skating, they put a cylinder on the back of an athlete and have them breathe hundred percent O2 while they're on the ice. That's an interesting paradigm that would not work in running. It would just bounce around and be way too awkward. The other instances we have, although not recently, this is more like six to 10 years ago, is um, used it in some athletes as part of their taper strategy as a neuromuscular overload stimulus to really push that muscle up to the next level as part of a taper. And so that's probably the two main areas that you would consider doing that. What are the lasting adaptations to doing something like that? We don't really know. There's only about four or five papers really in elite athletes that have done hyperoxia. We did two in my PhD where we took muscle biopsies and looked at the change in metabolism in the muscle, but it was an acute effect. And so basically you produce way less lactate, you're way more aerobic at a given output, and it instantly looks like you just put a year of training in your muscles because you have all this oxygen permeating through your muscles. Finally, I know some international federations have banned all elements of altered hypoxia and hyperoxia. So the World Cross-Country Ski Federations have banned that at competitions because it was just getting out of control. Like people are pulling up with trailers and they're doing hypoxia and hyperoxia. At some point, the, yeah, train hard, eat hard, sleep hard, take your iron supplement, let's bang the gun and see. And I love the simplicity of sport in many ways. That to me, even as a sports scientist, starts to get just a little over the top. And then it becomes about finances too, right? The teams that are well-financed. Yeah. I mean, it's very true. That said, I'm pretty sure the Olympic medal count is correlated to a country's GDP since the 1960s. So part of me is like, yeah, I get it. I saw Pogacar's uh, time trial bike for sale for $30,000 in cycling news yesterday too, right? So there's some sports you need money to play in, right? And there's other sports that you need less money. That's it. Listeners, this is a great time of year to expand your training knowledge. Join Fast Talk Laboratories now for the best knowledge base of training science on topics like polarized training, intervals, data analysis, sports nutrition, physiology, and more. Join Fast Talk Labs today and push your thinking and your training to all new heights. See more at fasttalklabs.com slash join. I have a few follow-up questions to the altitude camps. And when an athlete does become adjusted to altitude, do you readjust their heart rate zones? 
Yeah, so no, not necessarily, because what will happen is those zones will still stay pretty static, but the speeds and the powers in those zones will just get better and better. And the lactates in those zones will stay relatively the same. But again, the powers and the speeds get faster and faster. You can see that quite quickly, in fact. And that's another positive feedback loop. Like the paces that you run at, say, 150 heart rate or the wattages that you do at 150 heart rate by week two or three are five to 10% better than in week one. And that's a nice feedback loop for the athlete to see as well. And then you'd mentioned like different scenarios and potentially an athlete going to two bigger camps, like maybe spring and fall. And then doing those mid-season shorter camps, does that allow that athlete, it's kind of less stressful for them than to go mid-season for that 10 to 14 days? So there's the stress piece, and then there's also the competition piece. It's, in many instances, pretty challenging to find a three or four week block mid-competition season to be able to do that. Even if you have the finances, I just, especially for international athletes um, in most endurance sports, just have to compete in those areas. So almost by necessity, you end up with some smaller blocks. That said, the few papers that have looked at changes in muscle buffering, so with the biopsies, so that your muscles can buffer higher lactate and higher acidosis, and blood buffering do appear that those adaptations might be much shorter than the red blood cell adaptations of three to four weeks. They might be more on the order of 10, 14 days, a couple of weeks. And so I've especially seen middle distance, like 800 meter, 1500 meter runners get a very like kind of mid-season boost. And I, I do wonder, hypothesize that a lot of that, you know, in just a 10 day camp might be an improved muscle and blood buffering capacity when they then go into the races. And if an athlete has invested like spring, fall, they kind of do that big bunch of work, kind of aerobic work. Do you find that those athletes then just adjust better to that altitude at the 10 to 14 days? Yeah, so there's a few papers, Philo Sanders out of the Australian Institute of Sport, where they've looked at multiple altitude camps over like a two-year, three-year period. And there does seem to be a physiological, maybe psychological acceleration of adaptation. So the camp that I described and really taking it easy on week one is really more for a newcomer that's exploring altitude for the first or second or third time. And I think for those that have used it much more often or have just been at a camp two or three months ago... Um, and have it generally adjusted really well, you can get into your work a little quicker. And again, going back to that HIF1-alpha gene, there is cell culture work that does suggest that there is a memory effect, it seems like, in some of the genetic responses to altitude, so that if you've used it more often, you may benefit more quickly from it or adapt more effectively. Interesting. So if in these mid-season 10 to 14-day camps, how would you time that before a key event? Great question. So one of the camps that we mentioned is using altitude prior to a competition. And the art and science of the taper is more art and less science, I believe. And if there's any time of the year that you as a coach are individualizing the training, it's it's usually around taper time. And I always use the somewhat jokey analogy, but it's true. Like on a major key competition, you want your athletes to show up as a nice yellow banana. They don't want to be a green banana. They don't want to be a brown banana. Didi, you're a little bit brown at those world championships. You maybe overcooked it a little bit. You weren't rotten, but you're just a touch brown there. And that's that balance of fitness and fitigue that you're trying to monitor and just titrate in. So nailing a taper at sea level is already tricky. Nailing a taper now that you've put hypoxia on top of it gets even trickier. And so generally the kind of rule of thought, and there's been some papers published on this, but they're more like hypothetical papers. And there's a few performance papers are that 
you either come right out of altitude and try to compete within a day or two, or you come out of altitude, hit a bit more training at sea level and then compete maybe a couple of weeks later, you know, 10 days, 14 days later. For a lot of athletes, there does seem to be this kind of blah period somewhere around days like three or four up to maybe day seven or eight or nine where they've just come down and they're still feeling the residual fatigue from the training camp. Some of their breathing, as you come back down to sea level, you're still hyperventilating a little bit from altitude. That takes a little while to readjust. And so I think those rules of when to time competition also depend on whether or not you're in an event or sport where you compete at maximal breathing rates versus submaximal. And so if you're a marathon runner at a submaximal breathing rates, I see much less of an issue in terms of when you time your competitions versus a middle distance runner or power athlete or a velodrome cyclist where you're at maximal breathing rates, where there might still be this hyperventilatory cost of the altitude. Uh, so long story short is what I'm saying there is that it's either compete right away or probably compete after 10 days and get to sea level and get a few training sessions in you. I think those two windows, though, personally, tend to be a little bit over-religious or over-prescriptive. And I think a much bigger part is what the coach does with the athlete during the taper in their last week at altitude. And I think a lot of us forget at times, most coaches and athletes have their kind of taper sequence all written out. They know that this works. Let's go with this. I get that. You want something that's predictable so you can tweak it and work on it. But that's going to look different at altitude than sea level. And I think a lot of coaches forget that and just take their sea level taper, plunk it into altitude. Oh, you know, five days out, we usually do six by one minute and da, 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 and almost forget, oh, wait, the altitude is a little more stressful. It's a, got a higher recovery cost. Maybe I should dial that back 20%. So I, I do think if you take your taper, you dial it back a bit at altitude, then I've seen athletes compete lights out on days from one to 14 and everything in between. It just really depends on what the residual fatigue from the altitude camp is. And then you can layer in like, where are you traveling? What's the jet lag? What's the travel fatigue competition? Are you in Europe? Is it a European competition? All those other confounding factors of when and where to try to race. Yeah, it's complex. Yeah. Well, it is interesting because I've personally experienced feeling kind of crummy coming out of altitude. But to your point, I never really considered what I was doing right before coming down out of altitude. That's interesting. So last question about training camps. At what age would an altitude training camp or altitude training be appropriate? Well, there's kids born every day at altitude that are, you know, and they adapt just fine and they're pregnant and they're fine. And, you know, I think at moderate altitudes like Flagstaff and everywhere else, I think the answer for me is more around what's age appropriate for these types of big audacious camps. Like, am I going to send my nine-year-old at an altitude camp? That seems a little bit crazy and not thinking very long-term athlete development. Has he been to altitude five times with us as a family member? You bet. Does he do a lot of activity up there in plane? Yep. But he's not going there for a training camp. And so I think it really depends on where the athlete is and where they're tracking. And, and it might depend a little bit on where the competition is. So, you know, if World Juniors were at a location of altitude and you had the resources to take your junior team to go a couple of weeks early, I know this is all kind of mythical and theoretical. Yeah, that might be indicated. They're going to perform a lot better if they've been up there a couple of weeks than just coming in fresh and solo. But for most sports, you know, would I be doing three or four altitude camps and some 16-year-old kid who doesn't have their sleep mastered, can't work their way around a kitchen yet? 
hasn't maximized sea level training responses, has another 10 years of good work to put into that body before we think about altitude. No, it doesn't make sense. I think there's much bigger rocks to uh, focus on first. Trent, you touched earlier on the difference between athletes training at altitude in order to gain a boost before they compete at sea level versus athletes training at altitude to acclimatize and prepare to compete at altitude. An event like Leadville 100 takes place at approximately 3,000 meters. What do you think is the ideal way to acclimate for an athlete who's coming from sea level and wants to be able to compete at 3,000 meters? So first of all, using altitude to enhance performance at sea level The data on that and the meta-analysis of performance does suggest about a 1.5 to 2% increase in performance at sea level, but it's plus or minus 2%. There's huge variability there. And so, you know, some people argue that the cost benefit for sea level enhancement of performance is a bit questionable. So for your question, for sure, there's no doubt that preparing for performance at altitude by using altitude will enhance performance. I was just making the reference or the comparison that it doesn't always enhance performance at sea level. So there's no doubt that you will enhance performance at altitude by using altitude prior. That is an absolute for sure. And so there are a handful of papers that have looked at the timing, say prior to Leadville, and the timing you need to kind of maximize those at altitude benefits. And a lot of those projects were started because the Bolivian soccer team When you have to go there and try to make your World Cup soccer, you're at 3,000 plus meters of altitude. And do you fly in the night before? Do you fly in two weeks out? Do you fly in the day of? With the idea being that there is this initial adaptation period where you don't sleep well, you're a little bit dehydrated, you're hyperventilating. Maybe you mitigate some of those outcomes by just coming in right before because you're still going to be compromised on performance either way. So long story short is the outcome is that it doesn't really seem to matter and that probably the logistics around cost and trade-offs of cost, travel fatigue, family lifestyle, job outcomes are as important in that decision matrix unless you can go to altitude probably for a good two weeks prior. If you can go for up to two weeks prior, you will absolutely get a performance benefit. If you can't, then arriving two hours before or the night before or five days out doesn't make a huge difference on the performance benefit. You're going to be compromised at altitude because you just haven't had time to adapt. So usually if an athlete or coach asks me that question, I'm firing right back to talk about things like, okay, where are you based? What are the travel costs? What are the travel fatigue? What's your lifestyle? Can you take time off work? If you can go up there for two or three weeks before and get acclimated, awesome. It will help for sure. But if you can't, then anything in the last week, as long as you're optimizing all those other recovery things that I've just mentioned, then you're probably, my experience is you're going to be compromised, optimize all the other things and do your very best and other people will be compromised too. So if an athlete has a competition at 3000 meters and they're not actually able to travel and train to prepare for that event ahead of time, Is it a worthwhile investment if they have access to an altitude tent or an altitude chamber to use that to begin to prepare and start some of these physiological adaptations? And if so, like, what would that look like ideally? So yes, there does seem to be some evidence that an altitude tent at the front end can help stimulate or get some of the adaptations going for altitude, as well as off the back end. There's one paper out of China 
where the host altitude had people in a tent and they were able to maintain their red blood cells longer. So the tricky piece with a tent is that the total hypoxic dose is just significantly less. So if you go to altitude for the week, there's 168 hours in the week. You get 168 hours of hypoxia. You're lucky to get half of that in the tent, maybe 70 hours in the week, 80 hours, maybe if you go back in for your afternoon naps, you set it up so you can have a desk in there. Maybe it's a bigger tent that goes over a bed and has space so you can do some afternoon work in there and get more accumulated time. Accumulated hypoxic time is a major driver. That said, using a tent for two or three weeks will help with some of those adaptations. The increase in hemoglobin or red blood cells will be a little bit less, but it's still helpful. And then finally, if you have a larger tent, again, there's an ability to both sleep in it or work in it, but also do some training bouts in it. That can help as well prior to altitude. So yeah, just have to look at all those things. And again, it's a cost-benefit analysis of how much you're going to pay or not. For example, like for a lot of athletes that aren't acclimated to 3,000 meters, it's probably a, you know, it's individual, but it might be an 8 to 15% drop in performance at 3,000 meters, just to put that into the ballpark. Mm-hmm. Trent, I have a follow-up question on the altitude chamber. So when I was racing, I had a coach that actually built me an altitude chamber. And this, I don't know, I can't believe I actually crawled into this thing. It was like, for lack of a better word, a big PVC pipe. And we had literally no protocol whatsoever. Like I'd go in there in probably, I think an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening and put it to like 12,000 feet. And I was absolutely exhausted. And we were doing this somewhat in preparation for the Gila, which is at altitude. And I felt lousy there. And then we went to France and raced Tour de Lode. And I actually felt great there. But I just can't imagine that was the right protocol. And so I'm kind of interested to hear, like, if someone is using a chamber or a tent, what is the kind of elevation protocol? Yeah. So unfortunately, or fortunately, the body adapts really quickly to altitude. So if we look at the EPO response, and you go to natural altitude, for example, your EPO is almost back to sea level EPO by week two, week three. Or if we look at the EPO response in a tent, it goes up and down each night. And in many instances, if you don't increase the altitude on the tent by night seven, the EPO response is like a third of what it was on the first night. So that's great. Your body adapts really quickly. But if we want EPO to remain high, it does mean that, again, desaturate your finger oxygen <laughs> saturation or your blood saturation to drive the EPO response, then generally speaking, what we'll do is is say you got to commit to three or four weeks in the tent. You got to commit to 70 to 100 hours a week if possible in the tent. So have a setup so that you can accumulate quite a bit of time. So the altitude houses that they have, I say at the Australian Institute of Sport, people live in there, they make food, they're almost continuously in altitude or as much as possible. Three, usually in week one, you might do something like 3,000 meters of sleeping high. And potentially, if you're adapting well, by week three, it might be up at four to 5,000 meters of altitude, again, to get that continual hypoxic response. So those are probably the key pieces. Usually we layer some together. If, you know, in your training cycle, there's like a really massive workout, you know, every five to 10 days, like a really big monster one, maybe on that night, you sleep at sea level and then you go back in because you're also teetering on recovery. The massive thing with tents is that we know hypoxia and altitude disrupt sleep. In a tent, it tends to be even worse because there's a generator running. They tend to be hot and humid and sticky in there. 
So usually what I'll recommend is just absolutely crank the generator to max. And then when you're like looking for your altitude as a percent saturation, vent as much as possible to let as much air in that you can still hit your numbers because you've got the generator on at max. In week one, you're venting more. And as week two, you've closed the vent. And then by week three, and then you have a fan in there as well. Because the sleep quality is, if you're just totally compromising that, then it's almost pointless and useless. So Trent, I had leading up to the 2004 Olympics, I actually had an altitude company sponsorship, which was great. (laughs) And my husband was also training for that Olympics, but we shared our time between a house in Boulder and a house in Girona, Spain. And we had altitude rooms built into both of the houses, which was a much better solution because we had shortly experimented with the tent and found it like unlivable. But the rooms that we had had air conditioning, scrubbers. It was actually a really comfortable environment with a lot of white noise, which I sleep really well with. And yeah, I mean, I would generally sleep between 8,000 and 12,000 feet, but I would adjust it based on how hard I was training during that cycle and how my recovery was. I was towards the end of my career, so I was super in tune and had really good intuition around my sensations by that point. But I, yeah, I felt like it was hugely beneficial for me. Yeah, no, it sounds like you you had the wherewithal to make the room. And then through trial and error, you had a great sensation because that's functionally the protocol I just kind of gave you. Yeah, so I pretty much like I would travel to races occasionally, but I wasn't racing as many number of days. At that point, I was trying to focus my training a bit more and stay home more. But when I went away to races, obviously I was down at sea level most of the time. Very few other races were at altitude, if any. But so I did have breaks where I wasn't at altitude, but I was actually pretty consistently sleeping at altitude over like a year and a half, two year period. And then before the Olympics came down, you know, completely out of it to fully recover with a good period. But I I felt like that ended up being a super good protocol for me. Whereas my husband, who having to race and travel quite a bit more, often didn't have enough time, like in the altitude room, like he was coming in and out so much and racing so much and traveling so much that he felt like his recovery was really compromised and he wasn't able to benefit from it the way that, that I was. That's great practical insights. And that, that's why right up front, I said, if you can commit to having like a three-week block or four-week block, then it's it's quite worthwhile. Yeah. If you're traveling and you're in and out and in and out, you got to balance that fatigue profile. So Trent, it does seem just kind of based on what, you know, you and Didi are chatting about, like there's definitely trade-offs to being in the altitude full time in terms of certain capacities being diminished and, and others, you know, being increased. And so, I mean, I guess maybe it is the best of both worlds. If you can do something like what Didi did, you know, have that, have that opportunity to be at altitude during rest and sleep, but being able to be out training and at sea level, like what are those different capacities that are increased and diminished at altitude? Yeah, I think the concept of trade-offs is applicable to every aspect of training. You know, when you're recovering, sitting on the couch, there's stuff, there's stuff going up and down. There's trade-offs occurring too. And altitude is just another way to, to think about the trade-off decisions that coaches and athletes have to make. And so I, I had hinted at that earlier is one of the big compromises or, or trade-offs is that ability to do really high-end anaerobic quality training at altitude at higher altitudes is, is really tough, especially longer bouts. You got to break them up with more rest. And in the fall, or if you're away from competition season, it doesn't matter as much. It's, you're not doing that anyways. But if it's right before a really key competition, you got to be, 
you got to be aware of that. And so the live high, train low, it becomes a lot more relevant. Another piece is that, um, especially if you're just not used to it as much, there can be an increased risk of um, illness, just with the stress of the fatigue and the altitude and the, you know, initially the lack of sleep. Resting metabolic rate does appear to go up, so there can be increased risk for potentially underfueling or not eating enough at altitude. That, that's something to consider as well. And so there are there are a few you know trade-offs that you need to need to think about. When you also think about um, different events and different sports, it, it's quite a lot different. So um, let's just compare uh, swimming and cycling. The ability to swim in Zone One at altitude for some even Olympic swimmers is really challenging and to have their lactate under four. They're already hypoxic because their face is in the pool. Now you've added altitude. You can only swim so slow before you sink. You're like, oh, slow down. Your lactate's high. I can't go any slower. I don't have the technical or I'm not fit enough to actually hit zone one versus on a bike where you can just soft pedal or cruise or switch gears, right? It's it's a completely different paradigm for cyclists and swimmers at altitude. It, it high velocity, low velocity, like there's just it, it's just completely different. The other thing I'll highlight about altitude is, um, you know, every world record it doesn't count for all the speed events at altitude because the air is thinner. So high end speed work is is awesome at altitude. Your all your middle and long distance runners, all their personal best 200s are always at altitude. But what was really interesting, and I'm not involved with the program at all, but I know, I think it was a lead into Sochi is the US speed skaters didn't do well at Sochi. The Dutch did really well. And part of the thought was the speed skaters did too much altitude and their velocities and speeds were so high at altitude, mechanically, biomechanically, when they came down to sea level, they, or maybe it was Torino Olympics. Anyways, they, they did, they had a really poor games and the Dutch are like, oh, well, we're, we're below sea level. We're used to s- speed skating through the thick air. It just toughened us up, right? Like there was this whole discussion and I think the Dutch won like 10 medals and US won one or something. And so all I'm saying here is that there, there is trade-offs and it depends on the sport, the mode of exercise, how technical it is, what's the velocity of the sport. Is there biomechanical changes that occur? And so I think it's just important to think all these things through. And it gets tricky in something like triathlon where it's a multi-mode sport and you're balancing out all those scenarios across three different sports. Just have one quick follow-up to that. So where I live in Truckee is about 6,200 feet. And it's only about an hour down to sea level. And so people will, you know, go down and work for, say, three days and come back up. And they're back and forth a lot. Are they losing quite a bit of those adaptations in those three days? And then how long does it take them to fully acclimate again? So there's an obscure study done in Chile on miners that go up three days to work and then back down to sea level for three days, up three days to work, back down to sea level for three days. And they've done it for a decade. And um, there does seem to be a disruption in the altitude adaptation that occurs and that when you go up and down, you're just not there long enough to accumulate enough of the benefits versus if the miners just went up and then stayed for like a month, the blood values are completely different. And so, so yes, you do need to consider that. Um, The constant up and down makes a difference, but it's different. I believe where, you know, again, you're at St. Moritz, you're up there 168 hours a week, and then you go down to Chiavena for sessions and maybe you miss 
15 hours a week of sea level training and everything else you do up top. I, I, that stimulus certainly works because we've, we've done the blood measurements. So at some point, there's going to be a tipping point where you're just not accumulating enough hypoxic stress to really to get the response. Trent, are there any specific strategies around nutrition or supplements that you recommend for athletes training at altitude? And then also, like, are there any specific to females? Yeah, I mean, the big one is iron, 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 iron. So to make new hemoglobin red blood cells, you need iron because every single hemoglobin has four irons associated on the hemoglobin that that bind the oxygen directly. And so if you're in a erythropoietic response, you're in a response where you're going to want to make more red blood cells and hemoglobin, you you do need enough iron available and iron stored as well as iron supplementation to, to augment that. So we've done some research on this and published it. For most athletes who have a ferritin under 150, we recommend 200 milligrams of elemental iron per day at altitude and taking it as one single dose, not a split dose. So we, we've looked at that as well as you will get slightly better hemoglobin responses with a single dose. I won't go into the rabbit hole there of why, but it does seem to help as a single dose. And so that really is the biggie. And um, there is some dose response relationships where at actually out of Australia, they took a whole bunch of data, put it together. And those athletes had about 200 milligrams of elemental iron, had nearly double the hemoglobin response as the athletes had 100 milligrams of elemental iron. And again, a much greater response than those on zero milligrams of elemental iron. So know where your ferritin's at and supplement judiciously is a biggie. For females, because anemia is even greater, it's even more importance and more emphasis and more focus. The other things uh, at altitude is um, to consider is hydration. It is normally a drier environment. It's much easier to, to have levels of of dehydration. I think the three easiest ways to sort out hydration status are, are three simple things is um, a little bit of day-to-day weight. Like if you're having a massive fluctuations, that, that can be energy, but if it's massively up and down, it's probably hydration status, your urine color and your thirst. Just try triangulating those three things. And if your urine's generally clear, you're not that thirsty all the time and your weight's stable, you're, you're probably doing a pretty good job with your hydration status. The third major thing that I'll highlight is just total energy intake. There is an increase in resting metabolic rate at altitude. Altitude training also causes an increased use of carbohydrate calories because you're slightly more anaerobic. And so uh, you just have to be, be a little bit more on top of your caloric intake and specifically carbohydrate caloric intake. Mm-hmm. So Trent, for some people, altitude makes it really difficult to get quality sleep too. Do you have any suggestions around like improving sleep quality at altitude? We have a tracking questionnaire that I, I use with athletes and it, the questionnaire is part the Lake Louise Altitudes Mountain Cygnus questions, along with some fatigue questions and a sleep question. And uh, I just put it together and it kind of gives plus and minuses scores so I can just look quick on a graph and how people are tracking it. It's just something I made up. And sleep certainly is compromised, especially in that first week. So you get, for some individuals, um, increased headaches, sometimes uh, some GI issues or up a little more often. The sleep recommendation at altitude would be the exact same sleep recommendation as sea level is work really good on sleep hygiene, making a routine, getting light off your eyes, um, all the same types of recommendations. I'm unaware of anything specific to altitude. 
you know, melatonin can help. It's usually uh, a pretty natural and, and easy to implement that 30 to 60 minutes before you're going to sleep. But at the same time, don't be on your phone and have light on your eyes because that for sure delays um, sleep onset. Certainly, you know, some physicians in extreme conditions might have a prescription tablet for a, for a sleep aid. We're not a fan of that. That tends to indicate other and bigger issues and problems, but that is something to chat with a physician about. Yeah. And when you're monitoring recovery during an altitude camp or just generally when an athlete's training at altitude, are you looking at resting heart rate or HRV or both? Yeah. So we've tracked a lot of things. Uh, Three main things on the cardiac side would be resting heart rate. We've done HRV and we've actually done percent oxygen saturation. So again, using that fingertip SpO2 meter. Most athletes upon arrival to altitude from sea level will have a five to 10 increase in resting heart rate. So it is it is a good jump up. Usually by the end of the first week, it's come back down to baseline, except for usually at the end of the first week, you have your really hard first session. And that next day, it's going to be up again by five or 10 beats. That's okay. As long as it comes back down the day after your SpO2, your oxygen saturation at rest, a lot of athletes will drop from about 99 or 100% at sea level down to the low 90s. And then you'll see that over week one and two creep back up to 100%. That, that is a good, again, a really good sign of adaptation. And then for a lot of uh, some athletes that use HRV, yeah, you do get a, a 20 or 30% increase on average in HRV or RM SSD. Again, that tends to settle out again after about one week. You'll definitely get spikes after hard sessions. But again, if those spikes come back down on the recovery days, then you know you're tracking okay. Yeah, that's interesting. To wrap up, Trent, if you were to give three pieces of advice to an endurance athlete considering altitude training, what would they be? Be really patient with your uh, training intensities. Have very good intensity discipline, especially early in the camp. Kind of respect the altitude. Stick to those internal load metrics that you've used at sea level. Hammerheads get in trouble at altitude. So intensity discipline. Place a little more focus than you normally do on aspects of recovery. So if, if that's nutrition, if that's sleep, if that's hydration, if it's taking an extra afternoon nap, just layer those things in. Ideally, then take take that new uh, three or four weeks of habit that you've done and apply it at sea level too, because it, it won't hurt there either. And then number three is just do your homework prior to the camp to make sure that you have a good sense of your iron and your blood iron and your, your hemoglobins so that you know what to supplement, you know if you're healthy coming in. That's just low-hanging fruit that uh, a lot of people just don't do. Those would be my, probably my big three. That's super good advice. Thanks. You bet. Well, Trent, it's been great having you on and talking about this. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. All good. Thanks, Trent. Great to see you again. You bet, Julie. You bet, Dee Dee. That was another episode of Fast Talk Fam. Subscribe to Fast Talk Fam wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk Femme are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback and any thoughts you have on topics or guests that may be of interest for you. Get in touch via social. You can find Fast Talk Labs on Twitter and Instagram at Fast Talk Labs, where you'll also find all of our episodes. You can also check them out on the web at fasttalklabs.com. For Dr. Trent Stellingworth and Julie Young, I'm Dee Dee Berry. Thank you for listening. 